0: The songwriter says, With mercy and with judgment my web of time he wove, and I, the dews of sorrow, were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned. When throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. This Lord's Day we come to speak on the subject God is in control. Comfort for troubled saints. Now last Lord's Day, we spoke about the trials and tribulations of Job. And we did so for the purpose of confronting a certain false teaching. But this Lord's Day, we will look at Job again from a different perspective, in a different light. and Therefore, we will perhaps repeat much of what was said Last Lord's Day. This week, we preach on Job as a comfort and encouragement to believers who are in distress. Job is a great example of a believer who was in great distress, at proving the teachings of Scripture about the power of God. Now, those teachings from the New Testament are these. In Hebrews 1 3, we're told that the Lord Jesus, the same one who created the entire universe and is the image of God in the flesh, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Note this is in the context of Christ being the all-powerful Creator. Not only did He create, but His active power upholds all things. That means that Christ does not set the world spinning and let it take its course, but rather His power is keeping everything together according to His purposes. That Jesus who upholds all things by His power is the very same Jesus who died on the cross in the place of His beloved people and purged our sins in His own body on the tree. In Acts 17, Paul instructs the pagan Greeks that in Christ we live and move and have our being. This means that our very lives are upheld moment by moment by Jesus and that our every movement is made possible and enabled by the power of Christ. We only exist by and through Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul magnifies and exalts the Savior, repeating that He created all things for Himself by Christ, all things consist. Our very makeup depends upon Christ's upholding power. But these truths are often forgotten by believers. God rules. God is in control. Even in our troubles and in our crises. You see, when times are going well, we forget God. Because we did those ourselves. And when times are going poorly, We forget, God, that He's in control of all things, that He still rules. Isn't that a shame? Seems like the devil is besieging us from all sides when we have troubles and crises. Seems like the devil is besieging us. Everything is collapsing. We are in trouble. Our families are divided. They're fighting. Our kids are failing and falling into sin and trouble. Or we are sick or miserable in our own bodies. And that's when we forget that God is in control of all things. We tend to think that the devil is attacking us and he's doing that outside the control of God. That's not what the Scriptures teach at all. And Job is a fine example of the true teaching in this regard. We must take heart, though, in all of this. Our God rules in all things, even when we're in deep trouble and tribulation even torments. None of these things are happening because God has lost power or control. He has brought these things into our lives, rather, for some good reason, because after all, Paul teaches us that all things work together for good to them that love God. And in Ephesians 1, that God works all things after the counsel of His will according to His good pleasure. Well, we can either resist that teaching or we can embrace it as our comfort. And God would have us to embrace that teaching as our comfort. None of these things happen because God lost power. He has brought them unto ourselves for some good purpose. One day, we shall freely acknowledge that God did well for us. And that's what Samuel Rutherford meant when he said, even the dews of sorrow are lustered with God's love. So He'll bless the hand that guided. He'll bless the heart that planned. This is the attitude that we have to have if we are to face troubles and tribulations according to the will of God. Job is a great example of these truths. Satan mocked God for pointing out Job's uprightness to him and said Job would curse God if only God would stop blessing Job. So God told Satan, have at it. Satan orchestrated, or so he thought, horrible calamities all in one day against Job. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans raided his farm, pillaged his property, and murdered all of his servants. A storm then destroyed the house where Job's children were eating, killing them all in one fell swoop. Imagine that. to Have all of your children killed in a tragic storm all at one time on the same day. Look at what the Scripture says about how this came to be. Job 1 at verse 8. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house? And about all that he hath on every side, thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land? But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and then befell all those horrible catastrophes that we referred to just now. You see, God used Satan to test Job but note also, Satan is under God's limits and control. So when we think the devil is attacking me, it may very well be true. It may very well be true that the devil is attacking us. But under God's tight rein on him at all times. And this is true to the extent that God has complete control over the devil just like He has complete control over all of His universe. The devil has no independent power to run up and harm the Lord's people or harm anybody else for that matter. Note that Job didn't even know that Satan was attacking him all through the Scriptures, all through the book of Job. The back story is that Satan was involved in the bad things that happened to Job But ultimately, the bad things that happened to Job were at God's cause and command. And he used Satan, just like he uses all sorts of people, good and bad, to carry out his will so that it was the will of God that Job should be tested in this way. Job didn't know about Satan being involved. He never accused Satan. His friends didn't accuse Satan. But he knew God was in control and doing as he had a right to do. Look at what Job says. Job was devastated, but he worshiped God and made this profound statement, the Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice that Job correctly credits the good gifts that God gave to him as being from God and the taking away of the things He loved and treasured as being the work of God. And yet, God is to be blessed because we're we to bless God, we're to praise God, not based on all the good things He does for us, although we should give thanks continually. We're to bless and praise God no matter what God does to us or for us. Who is it said, though He slay me, yet will I worship Him? Job announced that it was God's doing that all these horrible things took place. It was God that caused the murder and the pillage and the natural catastrophe that took place ultimately. Because all things are upheld by the word of the power of Christ. And Job still blessed the name of the Lord. Furthermore, look at what Job actually said in Job chapter 1, at verse 20, he said, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice that God makes this commentary upon Job's statement about God's being the ultimate source of this evil. God said, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. You see, when Job said that the Lord took away when he did these things to him, God put His stamp of approval on that statement of the truth. It was the Lord that took all those things away. Job didn't blame Satan. Satan was involved, but at the behest and under the control and by the will of God. Therefore, Job was telling the truth when he said, The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This was not a sinful charge. It was not a foolish charge, the Scriptures assure us. What Job said about God being the cause of all this evil received God's stamp of approval. Job was correct. Job did not falsely accuse God in this matter. Now, to most Americans these days, to most American believers, this is a profound and a surprising thing to believe, what Job believed and what God approved of. But perhaps that's because we have things so much better than other believers have had throughout history. We don't recognize because we don't study history how blessed we have been in this country, in the West, and in other places with the manifold goodness of God towards us, with the ease with which we live compared to people in other times and in other places. You're thinking about most of the believers living in shacks and very humble places and working like dogs 12 hours a day just to scrape out a living from the ground and being failed by mysterious diseases that killed so many of their children and destroyed so many of their family and destroyed so much of their community and their nation without any way of understanding why it happened or way to stop it or ameliorate it or way to treat it. The farms weren't as productive as they are now. They didn't have fertilizers and they didn't have irrigation as well as we do at least. People have lived hard lives all throughout the history of mankind. And we live in a privileged time and with special blessings and benefits. And Maybe those are going to be taken away from us. And then we will mourn like Job does. But will we recognize that it is at the hand of the Lord, like Job did? But things got worse for Job. In Job chapter 2, we see the rinse and repeat cycle of this interaction between God and Satan. Verse 3 of Job 2, then the Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto the crown of his head, and he took himself a Potsherd or a broken piece of pottery to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Again, note that God is in complete control over Satan. He sets the bounds of what he's allowed to do. He's not to take Job's life. Satan then goes out and strikes poor Job down with this horrible disease. But notice verse 3, at the end of verse 3, notice what God says. You moved me, that is Satan, you moved me against Job to destroy him without cause. So you see there again, God takes the ultimate credit for the destruction of Job, for the trouble that came to Job. He uses His instrument, the devil, but God was in control. And we have to look at our troubles and travails and understand that God is in control. And that even if Satan is involved, it's only by the leave and permission of God and God rules over all things and God controls all things. Satan is involved, but God actually takes credit for destroying Job. And Job agrees when his wife tells him to curse God and die. Job says, you talk like the foolish women speak. I'm not going to dilate on that, but it doesn't sound politically correct, does it? But anyway, Job continues, what shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. So you see, Job is emphasizing this complete control of God of all of His creation. If we receive good, it comes from God. If we receive evil, shouldn't God be allowed to do that? Do we get to decide that God can only do good things for us? Once again, God confirms that Job's statement was not a sinful thing for him to say. Then we come to the next level of this. Job's friends show up. And after a suitable period of mourning, they begin to exhort Job that this judgment by God must be due to some sin in Job's life. And they say that completely foolish thing which is nevertheless repeated by some in our churches today that the righteous are never cast down. It's only the evil that are punished. So you must have done something wrong, Job. Just come on, admit it and get it over with so that this evil can be taken away from you. They say this sort of judgment just doesn't ever fall upon an upright man. But remember, in the throne room of heaven, God is telling Satan that Job is an upright man. And now he has been cast down. So apparently these friends were poor theologians. They didn't understand that judgment or trouble or tribulation, it doesn't always come because we've done something wrong. Sometimes it comes for other reasons. This is the false teaching we find in many of our churches They preach that God will prosper and keep His people healthy and happy and wealthy so long as they have faith and tithe and pray correctly and follow after the preacher unto wealth and happiness. And when troubles come upon believers, there are always a host of ignorant friends and false teachers ready to heap blame upon them for the trouble that they're receiving. You see, they haven't bothered to study the book of Job, and to see what the lesson is that bad things do happen to good people. I mean people who are right with God. None of us are good but God. Truly good. Then furthermore, You see, they don't grasp what Job knew and what God agreed with, that all things are caused by God ultimately, and nothing happens that God did not ordain, uphold, and sustain, and that this sorrow is not always due to some sin in the poor victim. Job quite rightly contests his friend's accusations. He's done nothing wicked to receive God's judgment. But he doesn't understand why God has done these horrible things to him and he complains bitterly to God to show him a reason why God did these things to him. And the book of Job goes on for 33 chapters with Job and his friends arguing about why God caused these disasters to befall Job. And again, remember, they didn't understand or know about the contribution of Satan in all of this. But the Lord never rebukes them for that, you see. Because fundamentally, their view of why this happened to Job is correct. And God finally does answer Job. He takes credit for the entire world and everything that operates in it. And He goes through several chapters of reciting His power and meticulous control over all sorts of natural processes that we take for granted. Why do the clouds fill up with water? That's me. Why does it rain? Why does the wind blow? Why does it snow? Where do the mountains come from? All the animals, how they behave. That's me, God tells Job and his friends. So God's answer to Job is not to tell him why he did what he did to Job, but rather to tell him he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He has all power. And it's foolish and wrong for Job not so much to complain about it, but to demand an answer from God. God doesn't owe His creatures an answer for everything that happens in this life. God has all power. God has all prudence and judgment. This is what God says. Nobody has a right to cross-question God about any of this. That doesn't mean we can't cry out to God. We should It doesn't mean we shouldn't call on the Lord for deliverance. We should. But all in the will of God and all subject and submitted to God's right as the God to do what He does and not to be called into question or judged for it. God challenges Job and anybody else who'd like to try to give him a detailed explanation for the wondrous and powerful works of God. But none can do so. Not only that, but God asserts His meticulous operation in all the workings of His creation and His creatures, both animal and human. And then we come to Job's response and God's sir reply at Job 40, verse 2. God says, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, Job's basic reply is, I'm going to shut my mouth now. I don't have any right to make an answer to the accusations that I've leveled against you and to your response detailing your Complete, absolute power over all the world. But the Lord continues. The Lord answered to Job out of the whirlwind, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? You see, it's more than just that Job has questioned why God did this. Job has sort of gone a little too far in that he has suggested that there's unrighteousness with God for treating him the way he has been treated. And God's reply is, nobody can accuse me. I have all power and all right over that which I have made. These claims by God are in direct agreement with Paul's great claims that we reviewed at the beginning of this message about Christ upholding all things by the word of His power. Job has learned his lesson that he has no right at all to make demands for explanations or justifications for the evil that God brought down upon him. Job says, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. And once these lessons have been learned and the people, including Job, been rebuked at the mouth of God, and when Satan has been humiliated before God, then God has vindicated Himself fully and God restores to Job a better place than Job had before all the trouble from God. His friends return and they celebrate with him. You see, Job's great faith through all of this, even though he questioned God improperly, his great faith is found in that passage that we love in chapter 19 of Job, where he says, Oh, that my words are written in stone, that my words were written with an iron pen, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. The Redeemer is the Rescuer. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that He shall stand on this earth in the last day. And though the worms destroy my body, yet shall I see Him there with mine own eyes, I shall see him and not another. And the thought of it takes my breath away. Job still believes that there is a Redeemer who will rescue him one day from the grave, raise him up to see him with his own eyes one day. His Redeemer, his God, Christ Christ the Messiah promised of old and trusted in by Job during all the troubles. That, of course, is our great hope. We know that our Redeemer lives. And one day we shall see Him. We've been promised it. And remember when we see Him, perhaps Job didn't understand this at the time, we shall be changed to be made like unto the Lord Jesus conform to His image, and He'll take away all the troubles, all the heartache and all the sin that has bedeviled us and that has caused so much misery in this world. But finally, we have the great example of the disciples in Jesus' day when the Lord Jesus went to the cross. You think you have troubles. You think you have tribulations. You think you have heartache, pain, loss, whatever it is that we have in this life, in this world. It's absolutely nothing compared to what the disciples went through when their Savior was nailed to the cross and suffered and died and was buried. This destroyed and overthrew all the things they thought they were about to enter into, the great kingdom, the rescue by Messiah of His people from the Romans, the setting of all things right, the exaltation of the righteousness of God over the land. They thought all of these were the things Christ had come to provide to them immediately and when it was snatched away from them and Christ was sent to the cross. They were, of course, devastated, gave up hope, crushed. And think about it. If that happened to you, if it happened to us, if we come to realize or to find out that Jesus really didn't rise from the grave and that He really was defeated and His whole plan of salvation had been destroyed by wicked men, why, it would make all the troubles we face seem like nothing. They would be eclipsed by the trouble that the disciples were faced with in this terrible time. Their Messiah put to death, defeated. How can He save anyone, he who is dead? How can a dead man save anybody? That must be the puzzle that they face. No wonder Peter denied the Lord Jesus. We probably all would under those circumstances. This is the most intense pressure and tribulation and loss that believers have ever been put through. What happened to the disciples when Christ was carried away and killed by wicked men. But look at what Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22 at verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus knew that Peter would betray Him. And He knew why. What had happened. What was going to happen to Christ. He was going to be put to death. That all of Peter's hopes would be dashed. Or so he thought. But the Lord Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And this is what the Lord Jesus does for His people. We've been given faith as a gift from God. And God's gifts are without repentance. He doesn't take them away. And the Lord Jesus is interceding for us at God's right hand. No one can accuse us because God has justified us and no one can condemn us because Christ was condemned already and then raised up and seated at the right hand of God, to make intercession for us. You see, Peter was under Satan's attack, but Jesus prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. And remember that it was Satan that entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot at the beginning of Luke 22 to betray the Lord Jesus. And lest we think that the devil destroyed Christ or that the devil crucified Christ, remember, the Scriptures tell us that what happened to the Lord Jesus at the hands of wicked men, at the hands of the devil, at the hand of Judas, was all according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was all ordained by God beforehand that it should take place. So you see that the back story of Job is repeated in the back story, although it's the front story, of what happened to the Lord Jesus. And there was Peter right in the middle of it, about to betray the Savior. But the Lord Jesus prayed for him that his faith would hold. Here was great distress, great attack, great loss for the disciples. Why did God send Jesus to the cross? God delivered him up, the Scriptures tell us. This is a great evil that the disciples were confronted with. A great time of tribulation and suffering. God did that to Jesus. Why? Why did God send him to the cross? God also poured out His wrath upon Christ for our sins. Maybe the disciples prayed that God would deliver Christ from the cross. Just like we pray God will deliver us from our tribulations. But God wouldn't do it, would He? God would not spare His Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Because God was accomplishing our redemption. He was accomplishing our salvation. He was bringing poor sinners unto everlasting life in the death that Christ suffered at God's direction and control and power. You see, no telling what God is accomplishing in our troubles when they continue after we pray for deliverance. No telling what He's accomplishing. But one day we'll know, and we ought to remember when we are being troubled, that we're being troubled like nothing compared to the to Christ trouble and tribulation at Calvary. Our troubles are nothing like what the disciples went through when the Lord Jesus was taken away and put to shame. But in all these cases, God works all things to our good, to them that love God. They're called according to His purpose. You see, Job's troubles happened to Job so that in Job, God might reveal His absolute control over all things and to provide us with an example of God's providence in the midst of our troubles. That God is in control, not the devil, not malicious people, not ignorant people, not vile and wicked people. God's in control. And He has a reason. And we don't have a right to demand to know the reason. Because He's God and we're not. And His history is, which we can rely on, that the things people wanted to stop, God knew better. And God continued until He arrived at the salvation which He had in mind. So when we are perplexed and troubled, we need to look to the trouble of the disciples, look to the troubles of Jesus, look to the glorious outcome which God orchestrated through all those troubles. Our very salvation came through troubles before and God will surely redeem us from our troubles also one day. This is the lesson of the book of Job. It is the lesson of the disciples at the crucifixion. It is the lesson of the Lord Jesus Himself in His troubles that God is in control and God works out a great salvation for His people one day. We may see it in this life. Job saw it. We may see it only in glory. But we're to trust in the power of God to do us good because we've trusted in Jesus and He has saved us. And around the Lord's table every Lord's day, you see, we, we celebrate the trouble and tribulation of Christ, which God wouldn't stop. Not for anything in the world, because He intended by this trouble that Christ went through to save His people whom He loves. And if you have trusted in Jesus, He has saved you by the trouble of the cross, which the Lord passed through when He found His sheep that were lost. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for what it pictures for us, the means by which we have been redeemed. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he would give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make an atonement for our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You found in Your dear Son a Lamb to be slain in the place of Your people that He might shed His precious blood on Calvary's tree to make an atonement for us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that He might wash away our sin by paying the awful price in blood that we ought to have paid. He took it upon Himself. You placed it upon Him. It was complete agreement between the Father and the Son as to these matters. And that you have accepted the offering of Jesus as full and sufficient payment for our crimes, we who've trusted in Him, That we lay our hands upon His sacred head and cry out, God, judge my crimes in this thy dear Son. And You did indeed on the cross. We thank You for that. He left us this cup to remind us of what He did. That's a cup of celebration. That He did that beforehand so that we might understand that He knew what He was doing. He was doing it deliberately. And it accomplishes His purpose and yours. For our redemption. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The scriptures tell us after they had supped that he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand and sing number 93 in the black book. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow, his head with radiant glories crowned, his lips with grace o'erflow. He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me, he bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. Number 93.